Well, good morning. I, I am thankful to be here this morning and, and to preach God's Word to you this morning. So I ask you to turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and we will look at the first 14 verses of chapter 1. And as you are turning there, I invite you to stand, if you are able, out of reverence for God's holy and inspired Word. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for the truths contained in. We are thankful for the Gospel. So Father, I pray that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are ready to worship You through reading Your Word and hearing Your Word proclaimed. We pray all this for Your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now when we were last together in this book, we looked at 15-23 through 23 of chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. But before we begin our time and dive into the text, I think it's important to set the stage and it's helpful to have some background information. So in verse 1 and in chapter 4, verse 18, we see that Paul is the author of this letter. He is writing to the church at Colossae around 62 AD. Now during this time, Paul would have been imprisoned. He would have written Philemon and he would have written the book of Ephesians as well. Now Colossae was located in the Lycus River Valley and that is what is in modern day Turkey. Now he writes this letter because more than likely there is a dangerous teaching that is threatening the church. And so the letter is meant to encourage the Colossian Christians in their faith. So how does Paul encourage the Colossian Christians? He reminds them of the Gospel. And the first way we see this is in point one. Gospel encouragement, our calling and commonality are in the Gospel. Now, oftentimes when reading our, our Bibles, my suspicion is that we pass over these first few verses of the greetings and the epistles. They might seem unimportant, they might seem repetitive to us, yet there are a lot of great and deep theological truths contained within the greetings of Paul's letters. Even in the greeting, we see evidence of the gospel. So let's unpack this greeting. First, Paul introduces himself. The Gospel is seen in how Paul describes himself and others in the greeting. 
In verse 1 he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. How is Paul's introduction of himself an indication or a reminder of the Gospel? Well, think a moment. Who was Paul? Think back to Acts chapter 7. We see Stephen being stoned to death. He cries out to God and then he dies. You look over at the beginning of chapter 8 and we see that, that Saul approved of his execution. But you see, Saul's hatred for the church doesn't end there. It goes on in chapter 9. A scripture records that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the church. This goes on and on until Christ changes Saul's heart. So Paul, the chief among sinners, the slaughterer of saints, is changed by the Gospel. He becomes an apostle of the Christ whose Gospel he sought to destroy. Now the fact that Paul mentions being an apostle brings a question to mind. Why would he mention being an apostle? Well, one reason likely is that Paul had never visited Colossae. So an introduction to who he was was necessary. Another reason why he does this is to establish his apostolic authority to combat this dangerous teaching that the church is facing. Now, he isn't drawing attention to himself and how magnificent he is, but rather he was pointing to the one who had graciously saved him and called him to spread the message of Christ. His status as an apostle wasn't based on anything that he had said or done. It was by God's will. It was solely the work of the Gospel in his life. Paul did not earn his salvation, but through the encounter with the Lord, he responded to the Gospel. Now as we continue in this greeting, we notice that Paul's not the only one mentioned here. He mentions Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy was Paul's child in the faith, and he was his right-hand man. However, the qualifier that Paul uses in this letter is that of brother. The significance of that term is that this displays the commonality that we have, that all believers have in the Gospel. We are not called into an individual faith, but rather we are called into a family of faith. When a person believes and responds to the Gospel, they are adopted into the family of God. You can see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans 8.23, Galatians 4.5, Ephesians 1.5. God is our Father, Christ is our brother, And everyone who follows Christ, has ever followed Christ, or ever will follow Christ, they are our brothers and sisters in the faith. Now in the next part of the greeting, we see the recipients. Paul addresses the Colossian believers in two ways, as saints and as faithful brothers. Let's first look at the term saints. Simply defined, it means holy ones. The title is not a title given to a particular group of individuals who have earned a particular status. Rather, the title saint is given to all believers. When a person is saved by Christ, there is a great exchange that takes place. Christ takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. So when God looks at those for whom Christ died, He sees us in light of Christ's finished work. It is not our holiness and righteousness, but it is Christ's righteousness and holiness applied To us. Paul continues on with a second term uh, for the believers in that of faithful brothers. We've already mentioned the term brother and have seen this in regards to Timothy. Now here's the plural used, Adelphoi, uh, which the implication behind it is not just brothers, but brothers and sisters are all who are of the household of faith. Now, for many of us, 
growing up and hearing brothers and sisters in the church context isn't something new to us. It's not a strange idea. I remember teaching a Sunday school class here with the third through fifth graders, and we were talking about the church being a family. And so I recounted to them a conversation that I had had that week. Uh, I had talked with one of our dear, sweet senior adult ladies on the phone. So I told the kids, I said, hey, I've got a sister who's in her 90s. Well, they all looked at me with this funny look. At, what are you talking about? You have a sister in your 90s. And so I reminded them and instructed them that when we are saved and when we're in the church family, we are brothers and sisters in the faith. We are called together. And a reminder that is needed here is that the church is not a building. It is not an organization. It is not a social gathering. It is not based on geography. And it is not based on some other similarity. Rather, the church is a family made up of those for whom Christ has died and purchased with His blood. It is a family whose sole purpose of existence is to glorify Christ as we live in light of what He has done for us. What an encouragement it is this morning that we can look around and call each other brother and sister in Christ in this place. Now one final note about the brothers is that he adds the word faithful. And he does this to describe them because of their faithfulness to Christ and to His Gospel. He addresses them not only as believers, but believers who are walking faithfully in the Gospel. Now Paul concludes his Short greeting with the blessing of grace to you and peace from God our Father. There is a heartfelt desire that Paul expresses here. These words are not just some empty words or some catchy phrase that Paul comes up with because he didn't know what to write. Remember, the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to pen these words. Grace and peace describe the benefits of the Gospel in Christ. If you are a believer, then you have these blessings of grace and peace in Christ from God the Father. And since believers have these blessings, it is very important and necessary for us to understand what we're talking about here. First, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Or in other words, it is getting something or receiving something that we do not deserve. Well, now knowing that, how has God shown us grace? Well, God has shown us grace in numerous ways, such as giving us His Word. I want you to think for a moment. If God had not given us His Word, think about the things that we would not know. We wouldn't know who God is. We wouldn't know who we are. We wouldn't know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We wouldn't know that there was a Savior who died on the cross for us and was resurrected. We wouldn't know that God has given us His Holy Spirit. We see God's grace in the fact that He's given us His Word and that He has given us the Gospel of Christ. We live in a culture that focuses on what we deserve. And in truth, what do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath and punishment in hell. But God is merciful in that Christ took what we deserved. He is gracious in the fact that He gave us His righteousness and freedom from sin. Now to illustrate this point about grace, I heard a story one time of a, of a man whose daughter came in after curfew. She thought she had escaped her parents' notice. So she goes to sleep thinking everything's okay. The next morning... The dad comes and wakes her up. He asks her to get dressed nicely. They're going to a fancy restaurant. So they get in the car and they go. They make a detour. And he goes to a jewelry store and buys her a necklace. And then they go to the fancy restaurant and have the best meal ever. Well, finally, the daughter just cannot take it. And she just starts confessing that she came in late. And the dad simply replies, I know. But what I'm showing you here is grace and mercy. I'm showing you mercy 
in the fact that I'm not giving you the punishment you deserve. I'm showing you grace and that I'm giving you something that you don't deserve. And on a much grander scale, that is what God has done for us and shown us in giving us Jesus. But not only has He given us grace, He has given us peace. What is peace? The dictionary defines it as harmony or free from strife or war. And believers have peace in at least two ways. The first way is that we have peace with God through Christ. Before Christ, we were at enmity with God. Romans 5.10 describes us as enemies of God. But in Christ, we have peace with God. How? Paul writes later in Colossians 1, 19-20, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Christ gives us peace with God through the Gospel. And Christ not only gives us peace with God, but He gives us peace with others. We can have peace with others. Before Christ, we were at enmity with each other. Think to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve and all of humanity, because of their sin, are what? They're separated from God. But in the pronouncement of curses, we see that Adam and Eve are going to be at odds with each other. We look in chapter 4 and we see the strife between Cain and Abel. The Scriptures are filled with examples of unrest between those who are made in the image of God. But through the Gospel, we can be reconciled to one another. Now the words grace and peace ought to encourage us and remind us of the Gospel. As one writer notes, grace and peace sum up the riches that we have in Christ. So Paul encourages the Colossian believers by reminding them of the riches that they have in Christ through their calling in the Gospel. Now our calling comes from Christ, and so our fellowship and our commonality should be centered on Christ and the Gospel. When we are together in this building or otherwise, we should encourage one another with the Gospel through reminding each other of who we are in Christ. And if our fellowship is centered on Christ and His Gospel, then we will see tangible evidence in our individual lives and in the life of the body of Christ. And we see this in point two. Gospel encouragement. The Gospel bears fruit and grows wherever it is. So Paul continues his encouragement in the Gospel by beginning the body of the letter with thanksgiving in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the Gospel. He had not visited the church at Colossae, and yet, what is Paul's response? He rejoices in when he hears of what God is doing through the Gospel. He expresses collective thanksgiving to God in prayer for the Colossian believers' faith in Christ and love for the saints, which are rooted in a Gospel hope. Now, he doesn't thank God every now and again for these things. Paul is always giving thanks in his prayers when he prays for the Colossians. Why? Because of what God is doing through the Gospel. The Colossians have placed their faith in Christ and display an ongoing faith in Christ. This is Gospel evidence of Gospel fruit in the life of the believers. In fact, faith in Christ is foundational to who, who the church is, to its existence. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was the teaching of Christ and His Word. To be devoted to the Word of Christ is to be devoted to Christ Himself. This mirrors the greatest commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, To exercise genuine faith in Christ is to love God, love His Word, and love what He loves. Now this is seen in the second thing that Paul gives thanks for, the Colossian believers' love for all the saints. Evidence of gospel fruit and growth are seen in a Christ-centered love for the body of Christ. Now, there's a small word in there that we might want to overlook, but we're not going to. It's the word all. Paul thanks God that the believers at Colossae have love for all of the saints, not just some. Now, take a look, take a look around this room. I recognize there are unbelievers in this room. But to the brothers and sisters, the believers in Christ, let me ask you this question. And ask yourself this question. Do I love all the saints in this place? Now, some of us might try to squeeze around that and say, yeah, I love everybody in here. But maybe I don't like some of them. So here's a question. Can you love someone in the body of Christ and not like them? Well, to answer that question, we've got to talk about what kind of love we're talking about here. We need to define the term. This Love is not the sense of warm and fuzzy feelings. It should be the same love that Christ has for us and, and that we should have for one another. So I invite you, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A very familiar passage to, uh, to most of us. And we're going to be looking at 13 verses 4 through 7. Here Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So to answer the question, can you love somebody in the body of Christ and not like them, I'm going to ask you another question. Does Christ love us but not like us? No. Christ loves us and likes us, and He showed us that by dying on the cross for our sins. So again, I say to you, do you love all the saints with that kind of love that Christ has for us? Is your love patient? Is your love kind? Is your love self-sacrificial? Is it free from arrogance? Is it free from rudeness? Do you long to be with the body in worship? Do you long to be with the body throughout the week? You see, your answer to these questions reveals the place of the Gospel in your life. And this is why it's important to remind ourselves of the Gospel daily so that we are reminded of who we are in Christ and who our brothers and sisters are in Christ as well. But let's continue looking at this word all. Because we might can say, hey, yeah, I have love for all the saints in this place. But so often, we are thinking about the people that we have known and we have met. But what about the countless believers around the world that you have never met? Do you love them? You might think, how can I love people that I don't even know? Here's a tangible expression. 
of that love. Pray for them. Especially those who are around the world who are under persecution and under the threat just simply just believing the Gospel of Christ is true. And there are other ways that we can love those brothers by going and serving alongside of them and making disciples in other nations. You know, it is a blessing to know the saints this side of eternity. And at the same time, we need to love those whom we have never met. So after hearing these characteristics, the Colossian church's faith in Christ and love for all the saints, let's pause for a moment and let's assess something here. How are we doing at Bloomfield Baptist Church? How do we speak about Christ and His church? How do we talk about Bloomfield Baptist Church? I mean, how do we talk about the church? The people of God. Do you recount the love that we are all supposed to have for one another? Or if you're upset, do you air your grievances via Facebook or some other means of gossip and slander? How are we displaying faith in Christ and love for all the saints? Let us ask ourselves these questions. And then Paul continues with his encouragement uh, with a reminder that this Gospel is a hope that is laid up for them in heaven in verse 5. This hope is the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now it is more than just being freed from sin and sickness and God's wrath, but rather it is as John Piper writes in his book, God is the Gospel, he says that the highest, best, final, and decisive good of the Gospel is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. In summary, the hope of the Gospel laid up for us in heaven is that in Christ we get God. The gift of the Gospel is God Himself. The source of our hope is the end result of our hope as well. Now mind you, this hope isn't a wishful thinking or a wishful hope. It is a hope that is rooted in the truth. The truth of the Gospel is the same good news that the Colossians had already heard. That truth came to them. It did not originate with them. Listen to what Paul writes. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the Gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. You see, it was a gift that was passed on to them. God gave the Gospel it was shared with them, and then in turn, it was shared with others. Now this gift is a powerful and far-reaching gift. We've already seen that the gift came to the Colossians, but notice that it's going out into the whole world. Not only is it going out into the world, but it is powerfully and effectively going out into the world. The same Gospel that transformed the lives of the Colossians is the same Gospel that is transforming the world. Paul encourages the believers by reminding them of the power of the Gospel. Wherever the Gospel is, it is doing something. It is not stagnant, but it is active. It is actively changing the lives of those who hear it and understand the good news. Listen how Paul describes this in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So what is this Powerful good news. Here we go. The good news, or the Gospel, is that God created a perfect world. Genesis 1 and 2. And that through the sin of Adam and Eve, everything became affected by sin. Genesis chapter 3. Because of Adam's sin, all of mankind are born sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 We are separated from God under His wrath, and we deserve to die. Romans 6.23 
We need a Savior, and that Savior is Christ, who was born of a virgin, Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. He lived his perfect sinless life, 2 Corinthians 5 21. He died on the cross in the place for our sins, Romans 5 8. And he was raised by God on the third day, Romans 10 9. And he ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 1 20. One day he will return to claim his bride, the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. This is the good news of the Gospel. Now the encouragement of the Gospel for Colossian believers is that they heard it and they understood it. Now this wasn't just some mere intellectual knowledge where they could grasp every word of what it meant. No, what it was is they responded to the truth of God's grace in faith when they heard it. And I think we need to understand here that the Gospel must be heard. And how is it heard? Not a new question. Paul looks at Romans 10, 14 and 17 and says this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. The Gospel must be preached in order to be heard. But many of us think, I am not a preacher. Listen, the call to proclaim the Gospel is not just for pastors. It is for every believer. I mean, look where the Colossians heard the Gospel. They heard it from Epaphras. Now, most of us don't give much thought to who this man is. In reality, most of you are sitting there thinking, hey Matt, there's another E name in case you have another child. And that's about the extent of what we think of when we come to his name. We, what do we know about him? Not much in truth. Colossians 4, he's mentioned. Philemon 23, he's mentioned. But what we do know is that he was a Colossian convert who heard the good news of the Gospel and then in turn shared it with the other Colossians. His name is not well known, but according to Paul, he was a faithful minister and a beloved fellow servant. This was shown in his faith in Christ and his faithfulness to proclaim the Gospel and make disciples. You know, as a faithful minister... His love for the church is also shown in how he talks about the Colossian church to Paul. He doesn't go on to recount all the crazy things going on in the church. Rather, he talks about the love that the Colossians have in the Spirit. This love is a Spirit-inspired and Spirit-filled love for one another. So what's the application for us? The reality is God is raising up people in Bloomfield, Bardstown, and Nelson counties to make disciples. Lord willing, He will raise up others to go out into the nations. Too often, we rely on outsiders to come in here and to do the work. Every one of us is called to faithfully minister where we are. So let us pray for one another, to minister to one another, and to boldly proclaim the Gospel and make disciples. Because wherever the Gospel is, it bears fruit and it grows. And if we have this gospel hope, our faith in Christ and love for all the saints will be evident. And this should be a gospel encouragement to us, which then should lead us to pray for others' spiritual welfare. So point three, gospel encouragement. The gospel compels us to pray for other believers' spiritual warfare. 
So look with me at verse 9a again. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul's thankfulness in prayer to God leads him to incessantly pray for the Colossian believers. Why does he pray incessantly? Because the Christian life is a daily battle against the spiritual forces of darkness. We never receive a break from pursuing holiness and walking in the Spirit. These daily battles are also moment-by-moment battles that rage. So that is why we need to pray without ceasing. If we're honest though, when we look at our prayer lives, we see that we can become lazy. And we can be too narrow-minded in our prayers. Oftentimes we limit what we pray for in terms of material things and physical things to the neglect of spiritual needs. But if you notice the content of Paul's prayer, he is making gospel-minded, spiritually focused supplication on, on their behalf. The first things that Paul prays for in verses 9-10 through 10 are that they may be filled with the knowledge of His will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wants to see the church grow in holiness and in faithfulness and in obedience. Which means it has to have a common purpose and strive for a common goal. What is that common goal? It is the same as our Savior's. To do the will of the Father. Now it is safe to say that most of us will probably struggle to discern God's will for our lives. This is in part because we tend to think of God's will in terms of specific questions we want answered or decisions that we have to make. But the good news is that in reality, in all actuality, God has revealed His will to us. So let's look from God's Word and see what He says. I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 12-18. through Again, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12-18. through Here Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in the love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Flip back a page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 3 through 5 again, where we're seeing God's revealed will to us from His Word. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Let's go one more place. Very familiar passage. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Here we're going to look at the passage of the Great Commission. But this is a part of God's will for our lives. So Jesus says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now we could go on and on and look at different passages from the Scripture and see God's revealed will. 
But I think it's safe to say that we can see God's revealed will from His Word clearly. And Paul wants the believers to have spiritual wisdom and understanding when it comes to following God's will. Spiritual wisdom is taking these biblical truths and applying them to our lives practically. Learning to live in light of who God is and what He has done for us. Now see, Paul indicates that his prayer has a purpose in mind. This spiritual wisdom and this understanding is given so that the believers then will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This worthy life is seen as the children of God reflect His glory through holy lives seen through obedience to His Word. Now, godly wisdom and godly understanding should drive us to pursue God and His holiness and His glory. And this, in turn, leads us to have lives that are fully pleasing to the Lord. Now, as believers, let's be honest. We can do things that still displease the Lord. But through the power of the Gospel, through the power of Christ, we can strive to do things that please God. Because Christ pleased God. And God is pleased when we lovingly and faithfully trust Him, follow Him, and obey Him. You see, this faithful living also results in fruitful living. As we've seen in Galatians uh, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, genuine faith leads believers to bear fruit and to do good works. This is a part of God's design and salvation. We are created and saved for a purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works as the result of salvation isn't secondary. It is a purposefully designed part of the Gospel changing lives. And another dimension of this godly life that we've been talking about is that there's an increase in the knowledge of God. How do you increase in the knowledge of God? Well, you spend time where you're going to learn more about Him in word and in prayer. If you want to know more about somebody, what do you need to do? You spend time with them, getting to know them. Now, this knowledge, though, is more than just an intellectual knowledge. It is a knowledge that gives way to an intimate knowledge and where there is a personal relationship. This knowledge is then connected to a deep love and desire for God. And the more you know about God, the more you want to know about God. Paul then furthers this petition as we we move on by praying that the believers then would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In verse 11. Now when Paul prays for strength, he is not praying for strength so that, that people will look at us and see how we're doing. No, the Christian life is hard and we cannot rely on our own strength. We need a source of strength that is inexhaustible. And only God has infinite and unfailing strength. Now notice though, this strength is granted according to His glorious might. Why is that? So that when the strength and power of God are given, it is His glory that is seen on display in His power through weak vessels. It draws attention to who God is. Now, the Christian life is difficult not only because it's simply hard, but it is difficult because this spiritual warfare, as we've mentioned, goes on and on and on. It rages day after day. Not only do we need strength from God, but we also need endurance to run the marathon of life and to wage war against the devil and his schemes. Paul prays that God's endurance would be given also with patience. Why does Paul pray for patience? Well, in part, part of the fruit of the Spirit in the believer's life is patience. 
We need patience to trust God because God's ways are not our ways and His timing is not our timing. Let's think back to some examples from Scripture. Think back to Abraham and Sarah. How long was it before they received the promised child? Think about how long the Israelites were in Egypt, enslaved. Think about the the period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the years of silence. How long was that? Think about the waiting for the Messiah to come. And then when He was born... How long was it before he started his earthly ministry and then went to the cross? In truth, in our sinfulness, we want to do things in our way and in our time, so we need God-given patience. And our God-given patience displays a trust and rest in God and His ways. Now, Paul not only prays for endurance and patience, but it also be given with joy. Like patience, joy is a part of the fruit of the Spirit in a believer's life. Not only are we going to endure with patience, but we do so with hearts of joy, knowing that it is God who is working for His glory and for our good. You see, joy is this constant that cannot be taken away or removed by surrounding circumstances. It is centered on the Gospel, which allows us to rejoice in any and every circumstance. The world looks at us in the midst of trials. And what they see when we do this with joy, is God's glory on display as we joyously and patiently endure. Not with frowns, but with hearts longing and looking to see our Christ. Why? Because we've been given an inheritance through the Gospel. What is an inheritance? Most of us know. It's something we we get when someone dies usually. It's left to us. And inheritance is not a foreign concept in the Old Testament. The Israelites... And their tribes were given an inheritance of the land. One commentator quotes this. He says, it's an earthly inheritance, a land that they might enter and possess. And like those Old Testament saints, we share and have been given an inheritance. What is that inheritance? It is the kingdom of Christ and God. It is no small inheritance. But one thing we need to be reminded of is that because of our sin. We were separated from God and disqualified from receiving this inheritance before Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, describe to us and for us those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. We were in that category. We were cut out of the wheel, so to speak. But in Christ, we've been made co-heirs, as Romans 8.17 tells us. We are co-heirs because we have been qualified to share in this inheritance through the Gospel, through God's salvation. Now to punctuate all of this Gospel encouragement that he's been praying through, he comes back to the Gospel and God's work through Christ in verse 14. He reminds them of their former state of darkness. They were in darkness. They were blind to their own blindness. But God did not leave them there. God did not leave us there. He draws our attention back to the Gospel truth that Christ has delivered us from that domain of darkness. But not only that, we've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ, God's beloved Son. Christ has redeemed us. Christ has brought us back. We were the ones who went astray and ensnared ourselves and enslaved ourselves to the devil and his schemes. This was our sin and offense against a holy God. And you know what? That same God is the God who paid the price of the debt that we owed. He redeemed us. He forgave us. What an encouragement to our souls this morning of what God has done. A holy God loved us when we were unlovable. And a holy God saved us when we deserved death. This is the greatest encouragement that we could have received. 
ever. Throughout his letter, Paul just talks about the gospel and reminds them, encourages them of this through his greeting, through his reminder of the gospel effectiveness, and even through his prayer. And so the question is, how should we respond to this gospel encouragement today? To the unbeliever in the room. It is our hope and prayer that the gospel that you just heard, that you would respond to it in faith. That you would repent and believe. So that you would have the grace and peace of God. And that you would live lives that glorify Him. Now brothers and sisters in Christ, how are we going to apply this and respond to this today? So I'm going to ask you to keep God's Word open to Colossians 1. Because we're going to respond to this gospel encouragement today in two ways. We are going to pray the prayer that Paul prayed for each other and for all the believers this morning as we close. And then we're going to respond in thanksgiving by singing, Jesus, thank you. So let us pray for one another and let us pray for the believers in light of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that Paul wrote this letter, that you gave us the gospel. Lord, we are thankful for the hope laid up for us in heaven. Lord, we are thankful that we heard the gospel, that it is truth. We're thankful for your grace and peace. And so, Father, would you please fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, not so that we would become puffed up with pride, Lord, but that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That we would have lives that are fully pleasing to you. God, would you give us the ability to bear fruit every day in every good work. And that we would increase in our hunger for You and in our knowledge for You. Lord, would You give us strength according to Your glorious might that people might see Your glory on display as You work through us. God, help us to endure patiently and with joy. Lord, thank You so much for sharing Your inheritance with us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank You for delivering us from the domain of darkness. Thank You for transferring us into the kingdom of Your Son. Lord, it's in Him we have redemption, for that we are grateful. Lord, it's in Him we have forgiveness of sins, and for that we are grateful. And so today, Lord, we say to You, Jesus, thank You. We pray this in His mighty name. Amen.